Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn in your Bibles once again to Deuteronomy chapter 30. So we look again at chapter 30, verses 1 to 10. You'll know, that, you'll know this is the third week that we've looked at this passage, and we will, uh, Lord willing, uh, have one more week uh, after this to look at this passage again. So again, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live." Also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on all those who hate you, who persecuted you, and you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, as he rejoiced over your fathers." If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh, Father. How we do pray for your grace to receive well the the words that you have given to us through your servant Moses and even all throughout the scriptures. For Lord, your words often do humble us. They are often work contrary to the way we naturally think. They work contrary to uh, our own natural high view of ourselves. Uh, But yet, Lord, we know that for those who receive your word well, who receive it humbly, there is a great blessing. And therefore, Lord, even as you promised to your servant Moses that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, that you would circumcise the hearts of your people, so too, Lord, now we do pray that you would incline our hearts to your word, that we might receive it well, and that we might glorify you by believing in your Son. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have been with us the last couple of weeks, you know, we, you'll know you know we've been looking at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10. The, the first week we looked at uh, a little bit about what, what Moses is trying to do in the, in the context, what he is promising to the people of God. We saw the way in which the prophets develop 
this text from Deuteronomy chapter 30, which the prophets always, when they speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, it seems at least very, very often, they will make use of Deuteronomy chapter 30. We saw the ways last week in which the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills all these promises, the way in which he's the one that circumcises the hearts of his people. He's the one in whom we return from our exile. He's the one in whom we defeat our enemies. And he's the one in whom we have all of the great blessings that are uh, found in the land of Canaan. Everything is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the other things that we see, particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and in all the ways in which this text is developed in the prophets, is that the thing that is emphasized is God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace. That without God sovereignly turning the hearts of people to himself, they do not believe. That is the point of Deuteronomy 30. And because Deuteronomy 30, and particularly as it's related to Deuteronomy 29 as well, uh, because these texts become so foundational for all of redemptive history, what we can say is, is it's not just that there are some texts in the Bible that speak about God's sovereign grace, but actually that the Bible is a unified story of God's sovereign grace. The entire flow of everything in the Bible points to the reality that if God does not grant grace, then a person is not saved. If God does not grant grace, they will not believe. Now, this gets us very much into uh, one of the, the great historic debates, and that is that of the Calvinists versus the Arminians, or as it's often known, the, the debate between predestination and free will. And now some will say that this debate is not important. It doesn't matter what we believe on these issues or there needs to be grace with those who have uh, different views from us. And, and of course, we want to be uh, gracious to those who have other views. And yet, uh, in reality, uh, this debate, the debate between the Calvinists and the Arminians, predestination versus free will, does touch the heart of the gospel. It does very much touch the heart of the gospel. And again, this is because, as we'll see, it's not just that there are some texts that point this out. The entire flow of redemptive history is one that teaches God's sovereign grace. Now, a little bit about this debate. You'll know uh, that the Reformed Church has actually always seen this as, to, as a crucial debate within the history of the church. Uh, Jacobus Arminius lived at the end of the 16th century and at the beginning of the 17th century. He died in 1609. Uh, he was a professor uh, of theology, and some of his views were began to be questioned towards the end of his life. And uh, there were those after his death who took up the mantle of his positions. They were known as the Remonstrants. And uh, eventually they caused such a disturbance in the church that, they, that there was a council that was called to address the issue. That council is known as, as the Synod of Dort. That met in 1618 and 1619. The Remonstrants came to the council and they had five points that they wanted to make that summarized their teaching. And all of them were struck down and there were five points that were put in, in uh, contradiction to those five points of the remonstrance. And that has now become known as the five points of Calvinism. And those are summarized in the Canons of Dort. Now, the order of the points in the Canons of Dort and the substance is a, a little bit different than what's classically known as TULIP. You may uh, know that the, the famous acronym for the five points of Calvinism. The Canons of Dort have, they're the same in, in content, but they, they structure the points a little bit differently. Uh, but that is where the five points of Calvinism comes from. Now, that's a little bit about the debate. Why is it important? Why is it important that we believe that the Bible teaches that God's grace is absolutely sovereign? The reason is because it affects the way you view salvation and particularly 
who gets the glory for salvation, who ultimately accomplishes salvation. You see, the Calvinist at every point seeks to defend first and foremost the glory of God, that God is the one who saves man, and man is the recipient of salvation, not so much the actor. On the other hand, the Arminian at every point, as we'll see, seeks to defend the dignity of man at every point, such that at every point that the Arminian talks of in the five points of Arminianism, in all those points, the thing that he seeks to defend is that man ultimately, man's decision is ultimate with regard to salvation, not God's. That it is ultimately up to man. So ultimately the question is this, the reason this is important is because we want to affirm that salvation is first and foremost the act of God. It is ultimately the act of God. And that is really the question that is the thing at issue in the Calvinist versus the Arminian debate. The Calvinist wants to say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? What did you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. The answer is nothing. There is nothing that you have that you did not receive. And therefore, there is no boasting and all the glory must go to God. The Arminian wants to say we have free will that we can use even apart from God's decree, even apart from God's sovereignty. And that ultimately, the salvation that we have is made available by the Lord Jesus Christ, but it has to be accepted only by man's sovereign free choice. That God in no way, in no way acts upon his will that is only up to man with regard to the reception of salvation. And this is significant, brothers and sisters, because in the end, the one who does the work gets the glory. The one who does the work gets the glory. The Armenian can say, God's done a lot of things for our salvation, but my faith is mine. And there's no reason our Arminian could not say, I have believed, another person hasn't. I can boast in the fact that I have believed and another person haven't. The Calvinist wants to say, God is the one who has done everything. And even the faith by which you receive the gospel comes from God himself. And so we see this at every single point in, the, in terms of the five points of Calvinism. You'll know if we follow along with the, the, the famous TULIP acronym, first being total depravity. The Calvinist says man is totally depraved. He cannot save himself. He cannot even will himself to be saved. He cannot will himself to believe in God. And therefore, salvation, if he's going to be saved, it has to be from God himself. The Arminian wants to say that man is only partially depraved. He cannot save himself but he can will to accept a salvation that is offered to him. His will is hindered, but it is not in fact depraved. Now, the second point then, unconditional election, it, the Calvinist teaches that election is God's sovereign choice. God's choice is ultimate. It's not based on anything that he foresees in man. It's not based on man's willing or acting, as Paul says in Romans 9. It is based on God's sovereign choice. The Arminian says God's election is dependent upon man's foreseen faith which means that in terms of the, the ultimate decision of salvation, God has respect for man's decision. It's not, and, and man's decision ends up being ultimate. Man's decision is the thing that drives even the decree of God. Man's decision becomes ultimate. Then thirdly, with regard to limited atonement, the L, as they, as they say in the, in the acronym of TULIP, Christ died for And the reason that the Calvinist wants to maintain this is because Christ's death must accomplish salvation. The issue is the glory of God. It would, be, it would be a thing that would cheapen the work of Christ if Christ dies for a person and that person ends up not being saved. 
Christ's blood must have its full effect. And that's the thing that the Calvinist wants to defend. The Armenian will say, well, Christ died for all people. And the reason is because the thing they want to defend is that it's not Christ's death that distinguishes people, Christ dying for one and not dying for another. It is rather, again, man. It is man's will. Christ did the same thing for everybody. And the only thing that differentiates a person from salvation or not salvation is man's will. Man's will, once again, is ultimate. The same thing is true with the fourth point, irresistible grace. The Calvinist says, everyone whom God draws comes to God, as, as uh, Christ himself says in John chapter 6. And the idea, again, is, is the glory of God. How can the Spirit fail to call a person, to, to call those for whom Christ died? Uh, if the Spirit is the one who's acting in the, in, the, in the drawing, then it must be, it must be that the Spirit is going to actually work. It, it would be... It would be a failure on the part of the Spirit if he tries to draw someone and then and cannot do it. There's an attempt and it cannot work. The Arminian, however, wants, again, the Spirit's work not to be the thing that, that, that differentiates between uh, those who are saved and those who are not saved. For the Arminian, the only thing that can, be, that can differentiate between salvation and non-salvation is the will. And so God's Spirit can be resisted. And the ultimate thing that that determines whether or not a person is saved is whether or not man has willed to reject the grace or to receive the grace. In all three of those points, election, uh, the, the atonement of Christ, and in irresistible grace, in, in the reception of grace, the application of grace, in all three of those points, the Arminian seeks to defend the primacy of the will of man. It is man's will that distinguishes the salvation or non-salvation of a person rather than the action of God. And then the final point then flows from this, the perseverance of the saints. The Calvinist says, if the father elects and the son redeems and the spirit calls, then surely, then surely everyone who receives the beginning of this work will have it on, on the last day, that God will carry it forward to completion. God's, God's action is the action of salvation salvation depends only on this action and therefore it must prove true to the end. The Arminian, however, says that the father's election is based on man's free will. The, the application of the son's atonement is based on man's free will. The reception of this grace is only based on man's free will. And therefore everything is based on man's free will and man's will can change. And if man's will can change, then everyone can lose their salvation. And this is where we get to another important point with regard to, uh, with, with regard to this debate. And that is that the Calvinist who seeks to uphold the glory of God first and foremost ends up also receiving great comfort because the Calvinist can say, I know that I am, I am saved. Assurance of salvation is in fact possible. But for the Arminian, as he tries to defend the dignity of man at every single point, ends up removing the only possibility of comfort because he roots his salvation in the will of man, which is changeable. And he ends up always being scared. Have I prayed the right prayer? Have I done enough? Am I actually going to persevere to the end? And there's no way to know. Even as he tries to defend the dignity of man, he actually ends up piercing himself with many pangs. And that's because it is only in the exaltation of God's sovereign grace that man ultimately finds comfort, love, security, in, the, in God's uh, great work of salvation. Now, what does this have to do with Deuteronomy chapter 30? Why, is, why am I talking about this, this long uh, discussion of the five points of Calvinism with regard to Deuteronomy chapter 30? The reason is because of this. 
Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10, is a crucial passage for defending the orthodox doctrine of the sovereignty of God in salvation. And again, it's not just that this one passage does it, but because this passage is so crucial for the entire history of redemption, the entire story of the Bible, from beginning all the way to the end, because it's so crucial for this, it sets up uh, this story to, so that we can say that it's not just, again, a few texts that teach this, but the entire history of redemption as it works out what Moses prophesies in Deuteronomy chapters 29 and 30. As the entire Bible works this out, the entire Bible teaches that we are only saved by God's sovereign grace. It's only by God's sovereign grace that we can be saved. Because the reason why the circumcision of the heart in verse 6, this is the really crucial part, verse 6, the circumcision of the heart. The reason why the circumcision of the heart is necessary is because when God did not give the circumcision of the heart, no one believed. And then after the circumcision of the heart is granted sovereignly by God, then everyone believes. It is, it is the circumcision of the heart that is the definitive the, the, the definitive thing that affects salvation. And it is not an act of the will of man. It is an act of God himself. It's not man's willing that was able to turn around the situation of Israel's unfaithfulness. It was God sovereignly circumcising the heart of his people. And so we'll look at this, we'll look at this idea under two headings just to, to show the uh, the, that the scriptures do in fact teach this sovereignty of God's grace. We're going to look at the universal sinfulness of man, the binding of the will. And we're going to look at that, uh, looking at the general testimony of scripture on this, and then we're going to bring it back around to Deuteronomy 30 to show how Deuteronomy 30 contributes to the, to the discussion. Then we're going to look at God's sovereign grace in Deuteronomy 30 and the rest of the Bible, uh, beginning with Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, and then showing the some other texts that the Bible uh, speaks of that uh, reinforce this same doctrine. So again, the Bible as a whole teaches that man is in fact sinful, that man's sinfulness is pervasive, that it affects every part of him, and that there's nothing that man can do of his own strength to change this situation. Man is born in sin, and this sin has affected even his affections, even his will, such that he cannot will himself to do good when he himself has been born in sin. And this all comes from Adam. Adam is the one who has, of course, sinned in the garden. And God threatened that if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. He dies. He eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they both die. However, they are not the only ones that die. Though the, the threat was only made to Adam, yet all of those who come from Adam also die. We see this over and over again in Genesis chapter 5. This person was born, uh, made of the image of Adam, and yet he died. He lived this long and he died. And then the next person died. And then the next person died. The point is, is that the effect of Adam's sin did not just affect himself. Sin ended up coming to all those who were in Adam. And how is this possible? If, if, uh, if, if death is the penalty for sin, how is it possible that others could then receive the same sentence as Adam? And the answer is because all those who come from Adam have received Adam's sin. They've all received Adam's sin. And therefore, uh, man is not able to refrain from evil. He is not able to avoid the penalty of sin. And we know this because of the very fact that all people still die. And there's no way to evade death. There, there's no way to get around the fact of our mortality. But that mortality is not natural. It is judicial. 
We have, we have been sentenced to death because of the sin that we have inherited from Adam. And this is, of course, taught in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in uh, Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And this sin has affected every part of our being, even affecting our wills such that there is no ability, even if salvation is offered to us, there is no ability of the will to act in itself to will to receive that gift that is offered, even if it is a perfectly free offer of salvation as we have. If anyone turns to God, if anyone turns to God, they will be saved. All of their sins will be forgiven. And yet, none of them, none of them will be saved. Now, uh, this does not mean that the will is, um, that there's no such thing as free will in any sense. Uh, One of the great defenders of the doctrine of predestination in the early church was Augustine, and he actually argued emphatically for for free will. Um, And this is because what, what has always been held is the orthodox doctrine is not that there is no free will of any kind, but that the will itself is free in the sense that it is free to choose whatever it wants without any compulsion, but that what it wants is always evil. And so the will is free in the sense of being free from compulsion, and yet it is bound in the sense of it being bound over to sin. The will itself is evil and will never will a good thing. It will never will to change itself. And so there are a number of texts that prove this. We think of Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You're not, it's not possible for you to do it. We think of Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And the question is, can you trust a deceitful heart to will something that is good? And the answer is no. The, the, the will flows from the heart. And if the heart is corrupt, then certainly the will must be corrupt as well. You think of Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, that the mindset on the flesh is unable to submit to God's law. It's unable to submit. Submission is an act of the will. The will is unable to submit to the law of God uh, in the flesh. And yet the one who is in the spirit is able to submit to God's law. But the one who's in the spirit has to have received the spirit from God himself. That's the implication of Romans 8, 7 and 8. We think of Genesis 6, 5 where Moses says all the thoughts and intentions of man's hearts were only evil continually. Really could not be said any more emphatically than this. We think of the intentions. Intentions have to do with the will. The heart has to do with the affections. And Moses says both, both are evil continually. There is no ceasing of the evilness of the, uh, of the will, the intentions, the heart, the affections of man. And if you were to ask, are we any better? Uh, the answer is not without God's renewal, because the scriptures even testify, even after the flood, that God's promises not to flood the earth again, they were not because man improved from the flood, but rather it was because there was a grace of a mediator, namely Noah. It wasn't because man was in any way changed. In fact, God even says, I will no longer flood the earth again, even though man's sins are terrible, even though all the thoughts and intentions of, of man's heart are, are only evil continually. I still will not do it because of the grace that was given through Noah. And so uh, this has affected even our will. We see in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and following, this affects even the mind. So the mind is darkened. We, are, we become foolish in our thinking. And again, if the mind is darkened, the question is, is it possible to will a thing that is good? And the answer is no. It is not possible to will a thing that is good if your heart is going astray, 
if your heart naturally inclines to evil, and if the mind itself is darkened and foolish. And so, in summary then, the scriptures teach the heart is wicked, the mind is darkened, the will is corrupted, and there is no ability to change this. All of this comes from our being found in Adam and being sinners in him. Now, those are typical arguments that are usually given in the debate between Calvinists and Arminians. At this point, sometimes it could be uh, tempting for an Arminian to say, well, um, to charge the Calvinists with proof texting. You say, well, you know, you're just pulling this or that verse. Perhaps you're, they'll, they'll say, you know, you're pulling this or that out of context. And they'll say, you know, you're just taking random verses and trying to prove your point. However, this is where Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10 becomes very significant. Because as I said, what it shows is that all of redemptive history points to the truth of this very thing. So that's not just one text that we have. It is the entire history of Israel. You think about it. What was the situation in the Old Testament? The people of God had every single external advantage. They had every single one. And they had, they had over a thousand years of history, 1500 years of history to show what would happen if a people were given every single external advantage, but the grace of believing was withheld. The circumcision of the heart was withheld. Would man in such a situation be able to believe on his own? And the answer is overwhelmingly, no, overwhelmingly, no. So that we could say the, the, the entire history, the entire history of Israel is the history of the people that had been given every advantage. And yet, as Moses says in Deuteronomy 29, 4, who had not yet been given a heart to know. What would happen to such a people? You, you think of all the advantages that they had. Did they have the word of God? Yes. They had the word of God. Psalm 147, 20 says, this is the thing that distinguishes Israel from all the other nations, that they have the word of God. Do they have the promises? Yes. Do they have the presence of God? It was visible in, in the temple. Do they have the voice of God? They heard it from heaven. Do they have prophets to declare the word? They had it constantly. Do they have the worship? They had even a daily reminder in the worship of God's goodness. Did, did they have a way to, to atone for their sins? They had an entire sacrificial system that was given to them. If they, if they did it faithfully, they would have their sins atoned for. There is nothing else that you could possibly ask for. And yet they were given all of these things and the result was 1,500 years of unfaithfulness. 1,500 years where the only examples are unfaithfulness, where the people of God constantly broke the covenant with him, such that even a thousand years, almost a thousand years after Moses says uh, these words, uh, Jeremiah can say in Jeremiah 5, God says, run to and fro and see if you can find anyone. See if you can find anyone who believes. And, you know, Jeremiah says, you know, I, I went and I, I couldn't find anyone. But, you know, these are the poor people and they, you know, they're, they're, they're ignorant. And so perhaps when I go and search for the lofty people, then I'll be able to find some. And so he searches, he searches old, he searches young, he searches male, he searches female, he searches poor, he, he searches noble, and he finds none. He doesn't find any examples of faith. And the, the point is simply this, God's people, if they are not given the grace to believe, they will always turn aside. It was an exact fulfillment of what Moses had said in, in Deuteronomy 29.4. God has not yet given you a heart to see. And the implication with Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 is this. He's not going to give this until the Messiah comes. So that the entire history of Israel is going to be the great history of what happens when you have the greatest of outward privileges and yet 
you do not, you're not given the inward grace. Think of even, this is what happened even with all the prophets. You think of Isaiah at the beginning of his ministry, he's told, you know, after the Lord appears to him, he says, uh, the Lord says, go and preach to a people who have eyes yet they do not see, who have ears yet they do not hear, who have hearts yet they do not understand. They will, they have an inability to lay my word to heart. And the reason is because God had not given the change of the heart. Now, now, you may be uh, thinking of an objection in your mind at this point. You may say, well, what about the remnant that did believe? Uh, surely when Jeremiah speaks, it's not a single person believing. We're not to believe zero without exception. Uh, surely Jeremiah was one who feared God. Uh, certainly there were, there were some, even if the number was small, who did believe uh, in Israel before. Um, just as we, you know, just as very often in the Bible, the, the all does not mean every single without exception. So too, the none in Jeremiah 5 does not mean zero, none without exception. Uh, and so what is the difference? Or, or how is it that uh, the remnant could in fact believe in God? Or how did they believe? And the answer is that the very few people who did believe in the Old Testament, they believed because God changed their wills, because God did it. And we even see this with the testimony of the godly in the Old Testament. What were they relying on for faith? The answer is God's sovereign action. We see this in Psalm 119, verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I, I will keep your commandments when you put it in my heart. Or you think of, again, Psalm 119, verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Not, I understand that your law says that I should be inclined to your testimonies and that I should not have selfish gain. And therefore, I'm going to do that out of faithfulness to you and fear for you. The, the heart of the godly in the Old Testament was incline my heart to these things. Change my heart to this end. We see the same thing even you think of with, uh, you think of even with uh, someone like Nebuchadnezzar, who is obstinately against God, and then God sovereignly turns his heart. Uh, he lays him low and then turns his heart, fulfilling what uh, even Solomon had said in Proverbs 21.1, that the heart of the king is a stream of water in his hand, and that the Lord turns wherever he wishes. The heart of the king, God turns wherever he wishes, even back to himself. You think of, of even in Isaiah's prayers, uh, as he's lamenting the lack of faithfulness uh, in the people of God in Isaiah chapter 63, and he says, you know, the problem is, what he says is, you have not inclined our hearts to your law. That's, that's what Isaiah identifies as the problem. You have not sovereignly inclined our hearts to your law. And then he says, you know, you are the potter, we are the clay. The implication being, what we're looking for is that you would incline our hearts to your law. And when you do, that is when we'll be saved. That's why the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 9. And so, the believing remnant always believed in the exact same way as the New Testament multitude, and that is only through the sovereign grace of God. Now, the next question you may be asking, the next objection would be, well, then what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? If, if in the Old Testament, everyone who's saved is saved by sovereign grace, and in the New Testament, everyone who's saved by sovereign grace, what's the difference? And the answer is basically the same difference as the difference between a puddle and an ocean. That in the Old Testament, there were some who believed, but the number was incredibly small. It was incredibly small. One very small nation tucked away in the corner of the world and only a small remnant within that small nation. That's, that's who believes. Such that, I, that, so that Jeremiah could say, if you go to the godliest place, the only place that has the word of God, he could say, I, I'm looking and I'm not finding anyone. 
And yet there's, there's some little, little number. In the New Testament, though, the difference is this, is the ocean. God normally gives the grace such that now, even immediately after the Lord Jesus Christ comes, he's raised from the dead, he ascends on high, he pours out the Spirit as the Holy Spirit baptizer, sovereignly circumcising the hearts of his people. And the first thing that happens is thousands believe. And the church has been on a forward march ever since with now even millions of people believing. And in every generation, there are always millions and millions and millions of people that believe. What's the difference? That's the question. What's the difference? Is there something that changed in man that caused there to be a difference? Now, we would, if there was, we would expect, um, you know, the Arminian would have to show us something like this. There would have to be some kind of way that we could say, you know, something changed in man. Uh, but if, if it is rather that the Lord Jesus Christ has come and that part of his work is to, to sovereignly turn, turn the hearts of his people to himself, this is exactly what we would expect to see. And it's in fact what we do see, uh, that, that if man is not given the grace to believe, he will not believe. We have 1,500 years of that. And the only difference is that Christ has in fact come. If, if as the Arminian says, if as the Arminian says, Christ has come only to make salvation available. And yet then it will still be dependent upon man's will to receive that salvation. The, promise, the, the problem is this is exactly the situation of, as the Old Testament. It's, the exa- it's exactly the situation. And Moses' testimony is this. If God does not put the, the, the love of himself into the hearts of his people, they will not receive it. But what Christ has come to do is more than simply make salvation available. He has come to effect salvation for his people. And thus, the, the only difference, the only difference between the, the hearts of the people before and after the coming of Christ is that after the coming of Christ, God circumcises the hearts of his people. God fulfills what he promises to do in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Everything is looking towards this great promise, and we see the fruit of this promise uh, everywhere we look today as we see the church growing and the gospel believed. This is why, again, uh, this is the, the, one of the main elements that the prophets build on. You think of uh, Jeremiah 32. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Jeremiah 32, uh, I will put the love of God, I will put the love and fear of myself into the hearts of my people. Or, I, or Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle them with clean water. I will pour my spirit upon them. I will remove their heart of stone and I will give to them a heart of flesh. I will sovereignly act not to offer them a salvation, I will sovereignly act to place faith and love into their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. This is, this is the message of the entire Bible. All of redemptive history can be seen in this, in this great dichotomy. What happens when people have every advantage and are not given grace versus what happens when they are given grace? And this grace is particularly related to God sovereignly turning the hearts of his people to himself. And thus, Christ is the Holy Spirit baptizer. This is why this is so significant. It's why it's so significant that Paul would speak of, of us being circumcised with the circumcision without hands, having the circumcision of Christ, being buried with him in baptism, being raised alive with him uh, in newness of life. And this is why there are many texts that do, in fact, speak of God's sovereign drawing. You think of uh, classically John 6, verses 44 and 45. No one can come to the Father unless the Father sent me draws him. And also, uh, all who hear, learn from the Father will, in fact, come, such that it's God's sovereign work. If God does it, it happens. If God does not do it, it does not happen. You think of uh, the, the drawing that Christ speaks of in John 12, 32. 
same thing. Matthew eleven twenty seven. You think of uh, what, what Christ says, None, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and whoever the Son chooses to reveal him. Christ's work is sovereign in re- revealing God to the people. You think of uh, Acts chapter 13, verses, uh, verse 48, as many who as it were appointed to eternal life believed. You think of uh, Acts chapter 11, God granted repentance to the Gentiles. You think of Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, that uh, God has even granted faith. That is, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. That is, even the faith is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. You think of Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, that it has been granted to you not only to believe, means it has been granted to you to believe, but also to suffer for his name. The entire, it's, but it's not just that, so we have all these texts, but it is not that we just have a lot of texts. It is that this, the reason why the New Testament emphasizes this so heavily is because this was the great thing that was promised. The entire Bible is filled with this story. Now, what is the point of all this? Why is it significant? Why is it significant to understand that God's grace is absolutely sovereign? The answer is because of 1 Corinthians 4-7. And this is perhaps Augustine's favorite verse. Uh, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it. Salvation is the work of the Lord. That's the thing that is proved. If you have every advantage, but not the inward grace, you will not believe because everything must redound to the praise and glory of God on the last day. There is nothing that you have that you did not receive. Everything is of God. Everything that you have received is from him. And therefore, God is the one who gets all the praise The righteousness that you have is Christ's righteousness. The holiness that you have is Christ's holiness. The sonship that you have is Christ's holiness. The increase of holiness that you have comes from Christ himself. Everything that you have comes from him. The will to act for Christ comes from Christ himself. The faith by which you take hold of Christ is given by Christ. The atonement made for your sins is from Christ. Everything that you have is from him. And if you were to ask, what is the thing that makes you to differ from even the worst of all sinners? The answer is this, God circumcised your heart. And in his good pleasure, he did not choose to do that for another person. That is the only thing that makes you to differ from the, the, the worst of all sinners. And this, brothers and sisters, is why grace is so amazing. The grace that has been given to you. This is the grace that there is nothing that you have that you did not receive. And if you were to ask, you know, what, what should you do in light of this? I would say uh, you are to do the same thing that the Apostle Paul said, where he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of the grace that he has given to you, you are to offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, because this is the only reasonable thing to do in light of what he has done for you. If God has done this for you, the only reasonable act of worship that you can give is to give your entire being to him. And so, brothers and sisters, may it be that as you marvel at the grace of God, uh, first, that he would grant you such a, a heart to marvel at this. But then secondly, may it be that as you marvel at it, that he would grant you the grace to respond with love to his name, for truly he is worthy of this love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for your sovereign grace.
how we do thank you for the sovereign love that you have shown to us, the salvation that is given to us that we could not earn, that we could do nothing to obtain of ourselves. And Lord, how we do thank you even as we consider that it's not just a few texts that speak about this. It's not even many texts, but Lord, it is the entire Bible. The entire Bible teaches us uh, one unified story of your sovereign grace. How we do thank you, O Lord, that you have given us your word. And how we do thank you, Lord, even more that you have planted faith deep in our hearts. May it be that you would stir it up, O God. Humble us, O Lord, we do pray. Keep us from boasting in ourselves. But may it be, uh, as Jeremiah has said, and as Paul quotes, may it be that the one who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. For Lord, we do ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.